from our gospel reading, everyone will be salted with fire. Maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace with each other. Amen. In our epistle reading, St. James describes two very different forms of wisdom, worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And there is a very stark opposition between these two forms of wisdom. There is, you could say, no gray space. There is one and there is the other. There is black and there is white. Now, framing these two ways of wisdom follows a very ancient tradition in the Jewish wisdom tradition. This is a tradition that has deep roots throughout the scriptures, and it goes all the way back to Joshua's own charge to the Hebrew people. He says to them, you can either follow the false gods of Egypt, or you can follow the God who liberated you from slavery in Egypt. Indeed, the choice between two ways or two paths of life goes all the way back to the beginning to Adam and Eve. Follow the way of the serpent, the way that leads to death and separation from God, or follow the way of God, the way that leads to life and blessing and flourishing. Black and white, no gray areas here. James is following in this tradition, and he doesn't mince words when he describes worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom, says James, is rooted in the disordered desires of the heart, and it always bears bad fruit, envy, selfish ambition, arrogance. Worldly wisdom leads to a way of life that ultimately denies truth. Worldly wisdom is, in a word in James's own description, demonic. Again, black and white, no gray areas here. Heavenly wisdom, on the other hand, comes from above. That is, heavenly wisdom is rooted in God's own speech, the word of God that is the Holy Scriptures and is Jesus Christ himself. This is true wisdom that comes from an intimate relationship with God. It is a life that bears good fruit, the fruit of purity, peace, gentleness, obedience, mercy, fairness, genuineness, and always leads in a life that bears good words and good works. Those who choose the path of heavenly wisdom sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts, says James. Again, there are no gray areas here. In our reading from Proverbs, we see that the woman, the woman of virtue, or the woman of, oh, how did the text describe it here? The woman of value? No, that competent wife, that's it. She embodies this choice to live according to wisdom. And in this description of Proverbs, we see a picture of women throughout the scriptures and in our own lives who have embodied this, as James shared in his own life. We also see this as the culmination of Mary, who is the embodiment of this form of wisdom, who gives birth to wisdom in the flesh. And so in this sense, Mary is the culmination of that competent woman, and Mary gives birth to the church, the bride of Christ, who is also called to embody the traits of the virtuous woman as the bride of Christ. Now, I would hope that all of us here would aspire to follow the way of God, the way of wisdom, of life, of blessing. And as James makes clear, this is a path that requires humility and a desire to be near God above all else. 
but this is easier said than done, as evidenced in our today's Gospel reading. First of all, let's set the context of Mark 9. Mark 9 opens up with an account of Jesus' transfiguration, where his own divinity is revealed to Peter, James, and John on the mountain. Immediately following this mountaintop encounter, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. Last week, we remember, Jesus did something very similar, and Peter had the audacity to interject and to tell Jesus that he was wrong, that he didn't really have the right interpretation of things. This time, Jesus tells them again, and the disciples remain silent, and Mark tells us their silence is born of fear and confusion. Then, in or probably in order to distract themselves from their fear and confusion, the text tells us that the disciples begin to argue about who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who is Jesus' favorite people? Who are the ones that will get top billing? Jesus turns to them and says, What are you arguing about? Again, the, silent, the disciples are silent. They've been caught. And so Jesus turns to them and chides them for their audacity. Jesus reminds them that childlike humility and a willingness to be near God are the marks of true greatness. You see, children have what I think can be called a natural affinity for God. Children are open and willing to accept and embrace the feeling, the intuition, the notion that God is real and that God loves them. It's not something they put a lot of thought into, it's something they just willingly accept. Adults, on the other hand, get too easily caught up in hypothetical what-ifs. Adults get very easily distracted by the world and all its cares and concerns. The difference between children and adults that Jesus is painting is very clear. There are no gray areas here. Jesus is telling us that a childlike posture, a willingness to embrace and accept God, is required in order to walk the path of heavenly wisdom. But then Jesus gets to our text today and says some rather startling and upsetting words. So what is Jesus getting at on all this? How come talk of children and then talk of cutting off limbs and gouging out eyes? What's going on? Well, first, Jesus is telling us that true power does not come from autonomy, but dependence on others. Children show us how to embrace powerlessness and dependence on others because children themselves require the care and the provision of others. Going back to the very beginning, the mistake our human forebearers made was the insistence that they could be autonomous creatures who could live independently of God. You see, most adults are functionally atheist in our daily lives. God is at best an afterthought and only consultant in moments of extreme need or despair. Children, on the other hand, remind us that the beginning of wisdom is the realization that we are dependent on the care and provision of God, no matter how old we are. No gray areas here. Secondly, Jesus is telling his disciples, both then and now, that true greatness is found in being a servant. Worldly wisdom tells us that greatness is born of the self-made person who is successful and powerful, wealthy and famous. The disciples are getting caught up in this view of worldly wisdom and greatness. Jesus is, on the other hand, trying to teach his disciples that true power comes from using your God-given power for the sake of others. 
You see, the disciples fall into the trap of arrogantly assuming that they were somehow better than that other person who was throwing out demons because they were called first. Kind of sounds like Israel before them. Jesus had to remind them that they are special not because they were called first. They are not a special clique of of elite disciples who somehow outrank the regular followers of Jesus. Jesus reminds them, No one who does powerful acts in my name can then quickly turn around and curse me. Whoever isn't against us is for us. In other words, Jesus is saying, all who follow me as my apprentices, you need to learn that following me is not about status. It's not about upping your place in the world. Rather, it's about service and being a servant of all. Thirdly, Jesus is telling us that those who follow him as his apprentices must be willing to give up everything to follow him. Just as there is no room for selfish ambition in the building of earthly status, likewise there is no place that for anything that will divide our allegiance from following Jesus alone. And it's at this point where Jesus' words become very, very harsh or exaggerated. Jesus refuses to mince words because weighty and serious matters require being very clear. And what could be more weighty and more serious than questions about following the path of life or the path of death? With his strong images of chopped off limbs and gouged eyes, Jesus is trying to be very clear about what the seriousness of what he is saying. Yes, he is exaggerating for effect. Let it be clear, he's not suggesting the practice of self-mutilation. But Jesus' use of exaggeration to make his point doesn't mean that we can treat it any less flippantly. Jesus' exaggeration underlines the seriousness with which we must hear and receive his words. So Jesus is making it clear that those who follow on his way, the way of of heavenly wisdom, must be extremely aware of the effects of their actions and words. You see, sin always affects both the individual and the community. There is no such thing as a sin that doesn't do any damage to a relationship. Sin always damages relationships. A person's relationship with God and a person's relationship with other people. It is for this reason that the sacrificial system described in the First Testament always has the community in view. This is why, as a community, we confess our sins together. Our sins have an effect on our relationships. And it's for this reason that Jesus takes such a harsh stance here. Jesus is saying there must always be ruthless action taken against sin. If we tolerate it, if we allow it to take root, it will distract us and divide us away from following him. So Jesus says sin must always be cut off, uprooted, plucked out, utterly destroyed. Again, there are no gray areas here. Jesus here again is following what James does in the epistle reading in following this appeal to the tradition of the wisdom of two ways. Jesus says there is on the one hand good fire and on the other hand bad fire. The bad fire is like the fires of hell. Now, of course, all your backs are up right now, right? Oh, no, no, no. We're 21st century Christians. We don't believe in that place. Well, the fire of hell in this text is actually better translated as the fire of Gehenna. Gehenna was a real place in Jesus' day. It was a garbage heap 
in the small valley in Jerusalem. And so you can imagine in the heat of the Palestinian sun that people are dumping garbage, there would be fire and things would catch fire, right? And so Jesus is giving a metaphor of a visual image that people would know. But the valley of Gehenna was also a place where Israel's own kings had sacrificed their children by fire, sacrificing them to the false gods of the, of the nations. So Jesus is saying, this is serious. Because what could be more serious than sacrificing children in the name of a false god? Jesus is saying, this is bad fire. This is the fire of sin. There is nothing holy or redemptive about this kind of fire because it is the fire that always destroys people, individuals, and communities. And so Jesus is giving a very tangible image to his listeners. This is also a very real and raging inferno that continues to blaze in our own world. Many of us know this in our own lives and indeed in our own homes. The destructive fire of sin, born of careless words and actions. But Jesus says there is also good fire. The good fire that is the purifying fire of sacrifice. The fire of the Holy Spirit. And to emphasize this, Jesus states that everyone will be salted with fire. Now, to our modern ears, this is a rather strange saying. What does Jesus mean, everyone will be salted with fire? To a first century Jewish audience, Jesus' meaning is perfectly clear. Jesus is making a reference to Israel's own system of sacrifice. Now, our default modern understanding of biblical sacrifice is that it's barbaric. Thank God we don't have to do that stuff anymore. Now, this is a very surface reading, and it fails to do a deeper justice to the meaning of the sacrifices in the Bible. You see, the biblical sense of sacrifice is always about transfiguration through love. Sacrifice is the outpouring of the glory of God over the whole substance of the creature. The creature which by sacrificing and surrendering itself makes room in itself for the divine fire. Salt was always to accompany the offerings of the Israelites as a reminder of God's covenant with them as a, as a people. The entire sacrificial system was designed to bring Israel near to God so that the divine husband and human bride could feast together at the Lord's own table. Because of their sin, the Israelites could not approach an utterly holy God, but rather could draw near through animal mediators, animals whose flesh was destroyed so that they could be transfigured and ascend, as the worshiper could not, into the own presence of God. Sacrifices were vicarious offerings of the self through the animals for the purpose of creating communion with God. In other words, sacrifices were a sacramental means of accomplishing communion with God. So the entire sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of Jesus' own sacrifice on the cross. Through his crucifixion, Jesus fulfilled and finalized this sacrificial system. In his death, Jesus offered himself and passed through death into fellowship with his Father. In so doing, Jesus fulfilled what all other sacrifices symbolized, the offering of the total self to God, undivided in its entirety. Just as the smoke of the sacrifice ascended and symbolized God's consumption of the, human, of the animal flesh, Jesus' own resurrection is a smoke that lifts up to God and definitively accomplishes sacramental union with God for us. It is through Jesus Christ that God comes near to us 
And it is because of Jesus and his mediatorial role as the sacrifice to end all sacrifice that we are able to come near God through Jesus Christ. Try as we might, we are incapable of finally and fully cutting off, tearing out, uprooting and destroying sin. It's not in our power to do these things, but it is in the power of the loving God who came to end the power of sin and death, to give them the final death blow once and for all. There are no gray areas here. As those who are baptized into the body of Christ, we are called to follow the example of Jesus Christ and to become living sacrifices ourselves. We are to season our lives with salt as we seek to embody the way of Jesus Christ. Now we know that salt seasons and salt preserves, but salt also, as Kramer, Elaine, Jerry, and George remind us, salt, especially on pretzels, make us thirsty. Have you all seen that scene from Seinfeld? These pretzels are making me thirsty. Okay, go watch it. It's a funny clip. Our baptismal vocation is to make people thirst for living water, the living water who is Jesus Christ. It is only through the refining and purifying fire of the Holy Spirit that removes and uproots and destroys sin in our life that we are able to do this. So my brothers and sisters, the question is this. Are you living the life of an adult, a functional atheist, or are you learning childlike dependence on the living God? Are you seeking status, or are you striving to be a servant? Are you traveling down the highway of sin and death, or are you willing to give up everything to follow Jesus on the path of heavenly wisdom? My sisters and brothers, there are no gray areas when it comes to life or death. May St. James be assaulted with the fire of the Holy Spirit, and may we be a people who thirst for Jesus Christ. May we be a people who are always ready to offer the cup of his living water to all who thirst. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.